this isn't a classic or easy empowerment narrative. This is a story about a woman who's paid a very heavy price for the decisions she's made. And to me, that's what I want from storytelling. I don't necessarily want to see big, huge, radical shifts of character. I just want to see something real happen that feels like life refracted back to me with some grace. Hello, and welcome to episode one, the inaugural episode of An Invitation to Destroyer, a limited chronological deep dive of the 2018 neo-noir Destroyer, written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, and directed by Karn Kusama. I'm your host, Jim Panola. During each episode, I start by reading a scene or scenes from the original script, adapting the screenplay into an immersive audio narrative with a full cast and a brand new soundtrack, followed by an analysis of those scenes, simultaneously highlighting the merits of the screenplay while exploring the final cut of the film, ideally shedding light on all of the unique components that contribute to the movie, and how each of those elements fit into the greater thematic ideas of the story. This series is very much a labor of love that is completely independent and ad-free, so if you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It allows us to reach more listeners and simply helps a great deal with visibility. If you want to go above and beyond, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola with no underscores where your hard-earned dollars get you access to a wealth of bonus material, and it directly funds this podcast. Thank you so much for your consideration. Before beginning the episode proper, I want to address what I think is an important question, or important questions, plural. Why Destroyer? And why me? This is important to answer especially now in the beginning, and especially since I'll be devoting a comparably insane amount of time to this excavation, as I did for my last podcast, An Invitation to the Invitation. Firstly, as most of you could probably guess, I have some history and serious hours logged with the work of Hay, Manfredi, and Kasama. So after much deliberation, I made the choice to utilize that considerable energy and momentum gained from an invitation to the invitation and put it towards destroyer. And selfishly speaking, I want to strengthen and enhance my position as an established, hopefully credible authority on the films of Karn Kasama and on the work of Hayden Manfredi. I could not be more excited. Broadly speaking, and very similarly to my last podcast, I want to shine a light on a film that is A, contemporary, and B, overlooked and or underrated. These criteria power the main creative engine for me. Because Destroyer is a recent film and because it has not yet received its due, that means there's an opportunity to stand in support of its value and to positively and substantially contribute to its legacy 
at this relatively early phase of its life. In short, I hope to make this series argumentative or persuasive in Destroyer's favor. One of the greatest indirect compliments I would occasionally receive on the last podcast I did was that it made casual fans of the invitation into full-on, true-believer, obsessive ones. If I can do something similar to the varied spectrum of Destroyer viewers, then I will have accomplished one of my many goals. I aim to embolden existing fans, gain new ones, and convert those who did not previously see or maybe understand all that Destroyer has to offer, which is a lot. Destroyer was always Karin Kasama's story to tell, and she told it. But does that mean the story of Destroyer's deeper meanings, nuances, subtexts, and merits are mine to tell? As we'll get into shortly, not only is this film told from an inherently female perspective, both in front of and behind the camera, its very origins and roots are inextricable from an equitable feminist mission. Especially as a straight, white male millennial, I don't honestly know if I should be the one creating this podcast, which is why I'll be mitigating that fear by citing the primary sources of Cole Kidman and Karn Kasama and the heavily female crew as much as possible. As a fellow podcaster whom I deeply admire advised to me recently in regards to this podcast, fear can be a great motivator. Keeping that in mind, I intend to direct that fear in such a way that it carves an intelligent, worthwhile path forward. One final note I'd like to make is that while this podcast will naturally contain spoilers for Destroyer, of course, my general aim is not to get too ahead of myself with the discussion of each scene as it's addressed. In other words, while I may hint at things that have yet to happen at times throughout the podcast, I want to make this series as accessible as possible for both people who have and have not seen the film, or read the screenplay before, for that matter. So, with all of that out of the way, without further ado, today's installment is a reading of pages one through four of the Destroyer screenplay, which is the cold open of the film. Let's begin. Quiet at this hour. 
Early sunlight is hard on her, a bit of a wreck. We see her goal ahead, cops gathered at a crime scene, above the concrete and wild growth of the LA River. Her POV, eyes flicking back to see her approach. Disrespect there, maybe amusement. Detective Kudra is in charge, older. His partner, Detective Gavras, a young, together Latina. Long night? Dragging anchor there, buddy. It looks like it. Dragging anchor. You know, the LT's looking for you. You need to take care of your own pressing shit, don't you? Yeah, I got it. She moves up into the scene. Hey, Bell. This is handled, so... Bell waves him off. So what is it? Then she looks down at... A body. A male. Face down. You want us to, uh... Yeah, come on. From Gavras, a barely perceptible, impatient rolling of eyes. Not missed by Bell. Shot three times at least, from the exit wounds right here. With? Gavras, just trying to get it over with. 38, dropped at the scene. She points. On the ground, a pistol. Handle wrapped in dirty red tape. Maybe a ghost gun. No serial, no prints, no witnesses. Look. Am I wasting your time? Casual, a verbal shrug. City's time. You got no role here. Our scene. Kudra glances at Gavras. Okay, enough. Bell leans down over the body. A moment on her face. An intensity, a disturbance rippling underneath. Who's this? No idea, no idea. Bell nods, then looks at the back of the victim's shaved head. A distinctive tattoo visible on the base of the neck. Under and near the body, something interesting. Several hundred dollar bills, deeply stained in purple from an exploded dye pack, are scattered around the body. A couple of them barely visible just underneath it few of those. Blown die pack. But not interestingly recent. Waiting on tech. A couple other cops approach. As Kudra and Gavras turn to engage them, we stay on Bell. Looking closely at the tattoo, the bills under and near the body. We close in on one of the bills. For a moment, the other detectives seem to forget her. She's an afterthought finally glance back. This is covered. Go. Lie down. However he intended it, it comes off harsh. Suppressed smiles from cops. What about if I know who did this? Kudra looks at her and shakes his head. And we could probably use that, Detective. You gonna solve this right now then, or what? She walks away from them. The fuck she's going? The fuck I know. Just leave her. Interior. Bell's car. Moments later. Bell sits on her own. Still not looking good. Disturbed. Distant. A rhythm insinuates itself. A skateboarder, watched by a couple friends, is trying to land a trick. A whoosh. A clatter as he fails. Again. Bell watching. Thinking. The skateboarder tries again, 
sales. Cut to black. A title. Destroyer. As much as I want to dive right into Destroyer itself, it would be lazy not to put the film into proper context, and that requires talking about a very important event that I already hinted at that happened at the Cannes Film Festival in May 2017. At the annual and prestigious gathering, Nicole Kidman, who at the time was promoting Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled, vowed to work with a female director every 18 months with the explicit goal of multiplying the number of female filmmakers in the industry. I can't say it better than Kidman herself, so here she is speaking to Stephanie Bunbury for the New Zealand Herald. Do you make a really conscious effort to work with women? I do. Yep. I think it's necessary. And um, I will continue to. It's very much a part of my contribution now is being able to say pretty much every 18 months I'm making a movie with a female director because that's the only way the statistics are going to change when other women start to go, no, I'm actually going to choose only a woman now. Um, so I'm looking at that for every 18 months, just there has to be a female director in the equation. You have to applaud Kidman for being so proactive and for using her power and influence and status to initiate such a strong and much-needed trend. I especially love her calling out of the often self-congratulatory, status quo-obsessed people celebrating how different it is now, to use her words. The implication to me being that, yes, there has been somewhat significant progress made, but when it is as pitifully scarce as she described with those hard numbers, any celebration should be met with firm, ongoing action, and not just a stagnant, mission-accomplished banner. Since Kidman announced that 2016 figure, things have improved, but not much. According to the World Economic Forum, quote, the number of women behind the camera on Hollywood movies jumped to record levels in 2019, with 12 directing top-grossing films, including Frozen 2, Captain Marvel, and Hustlers. Women made up 10.6% of directors of the top movies last year, more than double the percentage in 2018, and the highest percentage of female directors in the past decade. A study by the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative at USC found, end quote, and according to Wikipedia, Kidman began negotiations to star in Destroyer in August 2017, which was eventually confirmed a few months later that October, finally leading to an early December production start. In other words, Kidman almost immediately kept her word, making tangible progress within three months of her announcement and starting Destroyer in earnest before the year's end. She did what she said she was going to do, and it's worth reiterating, repeating, that she did so while promoting the feature film of another female filmmaker, which was Sofia Coppola. Kidman also fulfilled her adjacent goal of working with and uplifting 
more storytellers from her home country of Australia. Acting in Aussie director Joel Edgerton's Boy Erased, the same year as Destroyer's release, a film adaptation which notably depicted the absurd level of oppression that members of the LGBTQ community often receive. Additionally, she starred in HBO's Big Little Lies, which premiered in February 2017, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, but based on the novel by Australian author Leanne Moriarty. According to ABC Australia, Kidman said, quote, I am always looking and always trying to employ Australian writers and directors and trying to give work to them. They created me, so my desire to always be a part of it and give back to it never wanes. End quote. Again, in 2019, arguably the last normal year for movies, women only made up 10% of the top grossing films. And according to womenandhollywood.com, 2020, which was a bizarre and difficult year, despite Hollywood taking well-publicized, mostly successful precautions, women fared best as producers, 40%, followed by directors, 38 writers, 35%, executive producers, 33 editors, 28 and cinematographers, 16 Something that will recur throughout this series is the sense of continuity and or divergence from the invitation. And before we even see anything in Destroyer, we hear. We hear the original score of the Invitation's composer and longtime Kasama collaborator, Theodore Shapiro. I need to mention this because the composer seems to employ the same stringed instruments from the Invitation's musical accompaniment. But now, instead of sickly thumps, They're cracked, brittle, and aged scratches. For Kasama loyalists like myself, the effect of this is understated at first, but it creates a quiet sonic link between these films that very much stand as complete and separate entities. Musically, it's like the anxiety of the previous film has scarred over into a frail but resilient quasi-melody. In essence, Kasama is crafting her story before we see anything that isn't a company logo, before we even see the sun-like bursts of color behind the opening titles. And speaking of titles, I love how the screenwriters directly embed the title reveal of the film within the structure of the screenplay and of the story, which is another interesting divergence from the Invitation's screenplay. I love this detail unto itself because it actually has a very specific purpose that we will eventually talk more about. In terms of visual analysis, I'm a sucker for the kinds of light leaks that Kasama and cinematographer Julie Kirkwood manifest in the very first real images of the movie. I hesitate to even call these shots because they're so organic and abstract that they seem to resemble disembodied halos. Terminology aside, this effect was achieved by removing any sort of lens from the camera. The only barrier between the camera itself and the light source being the filmmaker's hands. The result meant to mimic 
the sense of sunlight behind your eyelids, to quote Karn Kasama directly. The warm, even scorching, yellows and oranges that pierce through the black canvas convey a painterly feeling, and a slightly uneasy one as well, since there's no discernible pattern to the formless glowing that we see. That unease is justified when we see the first proper shot of the film, an extreme close-up of Aaron Bell's pale, weathered eyes and broken nose. As it turns out, those abstract light leaks were more than just an evocative artistic choice. They were utilitarian as well, functioning as a POV shot from Bell's perspective, right before she opened her eyes inside her sun-flooded car driver's seat. It feels appropriate that in a movie that is so relentlessly and proudly tethered to Los Angeles, something we will return to constantly, a city defined by its sprawling highways and punishing traffic, that our introduction to our protagonist is in her car as she sits behind her driver's wheel. Again, this is something we will come back to because not only were the filmmakers determined to show a specific reverence for LA, they were determined to do so via the locations in the city that have not yet been rendered meaningless from overuse and cliché. In other words, Kasama and company embrace, rather than shy away from, the less savory parts of California, both in terms of location as well as culture. In any case, as soon as Belle exits her car, which is parked in the fleeting shade of an overpass, almost like she's a reclusive desert troll. We see her shambling along the beige, palm tree-laden dirt. I love the precision of Kidman's gait or walk as she moves towards the crime scene. On first watch, and you'll hear me say that a lot on first watch, because this movie begs for repeat viewings, Kidman's performance might feel somewhat off or lazy when in reality, that assessment couldn't be further from the truth. I only say that because, in my experience, when actors play drunk or hungover, they're walking a tightrope that is dangerously at risk of descending into parody or exaggeration at any moment. And sometimes it might call for that, especially when you factor in the distance, the camera closeness uh, to an actor. But because we're so inundated with those exaggerations, seeing a more restrained version can ironically be jarring. I think subconsciously when I first saw Kidman's intentionally non-committal shuffle through that dirt, I in some ways wrote it off because I implicitly thought that the lack of extreme body language was lazy acting. Fuck me for ever underestimating Nicole Kidman or the filmmakers. On the contrary, Kidman's performance is working overtime before we even hear her utter a single line because she has to balance and convey multiple conditions that could be informing Belle's painfully slow strut without being overly obvious with any of them. These possible altered states need to hold up under the scrutiny of retrospect and explicit rewatches, and they do. Put simply, Bell's walk, by way of Kidman's performance, has to have enough depth to believably be read as drunk, fatigued, hungover, fatally wounded, or all of the above. 
Much like the movie itself, it needs to reconcile past, present, and future timelines. Speaking of which, I'd argue that one of Karin Kasama's strengths as a filmmaker and director is her almost chameleonic visual style from movie to movie. I had a friend text me recently who watched Jennifer's Body for the first time, and they were blown away that it was the same director as The Invitation. Granted, there are a lot of other thematic differences between those films, but I think the visual is the shorthand for those differences. I think this speaks to something Logan Marshall Green pointed out to me during our conversation from the previous podcast series, wherein he was keen to point out how good Kasama is at not being precious during production. I mention all of this because I don't recognize any misguided or shallow attempts to recreate anything she's already done, which itself is consistent with the conversations I've had with Karin where she's described how the act of movie making is almost explicitly in the interest of exercising a certain thought, feeling, subject, or story so that she doesn't have to think about it or carry it anymore. The scrappy shooting style of Girl Fight, her debut, which mirrors the scrappy spirit of its star, remains singular in Kasama's filmography. The DP for that film was Patrick Cady. By contrast, the locked-off, almost geometric visuals of Eon Flux are a far cry from Girl Fight's grounded, almost documentary-like approach. The DP for Eon Flux was Stuart Dryberg. Jennifer's body and its saturated use of chiaroscuro and stylized horror are another bold pivot. The DP for that film was M. David Mullen. And what more can I say about The Invitation other than that its incredible compositional precision and indelible color palette, specifically as the feature film follow-up to Jennifer's Body, are maybe the closest she's come to repeating herself, the DP for The Invitation, of course, being Bobby Shore. Which brings us to Destroyer and its nearly reverent depiction of the unromanticized parts of Los Angeles and California that we're so used to seeing on screen. Kasama and director of photography Julie Kirkwood almost immediately embrace the way Destroyer, despite being a deeply LA movie like its predecessor, is bleached in unforgiving sunlight, something which strongly juxtaposes the claustrophobic, heavily shadowed corridors of David and Eden's house in The Invitation. Moreover, as Kasama notes in Destroyer's audio commentary track, the subtle pink lens flares on display at the crime scene were something that she at first resisted, but came to actively seek. Again, I think this speaks to Kasama's conscious efforts to distinguish her films, and perhaps a larger, more selfless interest in not being precious and accepting organically what the film calls for as it unfolds. And if you didn't already pick up on it yourself, all of this is reinforced by the fact that Kasama, who is no stranger to cast and crew loyalty across her prolific film and TV career, has never worked with the same director of photography twice in a row in any of her feature film projects, though she did reunite with Girlfight DP Patrick Cady on her short film Her Only Living Son for the anthology horror feature XX, 
More relevant and significant, though, is her continued partnership with cinematographer Julie Kirkwood. Kasama and Kirkwood collaborated on the pilot of the award-winning hit series Yellow Jackets following Destroyer, and were scheduled to step back into the feature film world together on the Dracula adaptation Mina Harker before it was tragically scrapped mere weeks before production. But before we transition away completely from Destroyer's aesthetic contributions, we simply have to discuss the vital clues left by the writers. In chronological order, Hay and Manfredi plant the following three items, each of them marked by a color or distinctive location. There's the pistol, wrapped in dirty red tape, the tattoo at the base of the dead body's neck, and the cash stained purple from an exploded dye pack. The screenwriters go so far as to literally underline each of these, which I love. Some might find this inelegant, but as a visual learner, I adore this kind of clarity and distinction. Screenplays are by their very nature quite dry. Unlike, say, a novel, they have to find the balance between utility and entertainment. Therefore, deliberate use of underlining can go a long way in establishing important details. If you saw how I write my scripts for these podcasts, you'd likely vomit from the liberal use of bolds, italics, underlining, highlights, and color. The point being that I admire how Hay and Manfredi are unafraid to tell you that these are things they don't want the reader to forget. And again, since they know the ultimate form designed for this story is a visual medium, they give these details specific identifiers. Subconsciously or consciously, these specifics will help us remember each of them in an organic way that doesn't require perfunctory or boring verbal exposition. We know the gun is significant because it's wrapped in red tape. We know the cash is important because it's stained from a purple dye pack. We know that tattoo will figure into the narrative because of its placement on the dead body's neck. That's a good amount of info before we even see the title of the film, but audiences are smart and audiences know the language of cinema. So do the writers, of course which is why they're so adept at conveying it concisely and with layered subtext. My favorite detail of this prologue, of this cold open, is the tattoo. Notably in the script, the tattoo is only described as, quote, a distinctive tattoo visible on the base of the neck, end quote. This vague description, which of course has a specific location, is in pretty sharp contrast to the final visual. And I imagine Hay and Manfredi deliberately left the design open-ended, knowing they would eventually finesse its look and meaning with Kasama and the rest of the crew. Indeed, the sequence of three large black circles on the body's neck have, at minimum, a triple meaning. Indulge me. Again, they're a series of circles, which hints at the shape of the narrative structure, an ellipse if you will. Two, it is three circles or three large dots, which is quite literally an ellipsis, also known as a dot dot dot. An ellipsis is used as an intentional omission of a thought or sentence which implies whatever is absent without altering the meaning. Once more, this is a visual echo 
of what the storytellers are doing on a structural level. They're leaving out certain details about the chronology of events that will be revealed through context. We'll get into this more throughout the series, but this same idea is emphasized by the filmmaker's interest in exploiting the very nature of moving images and how they're consumed by an audience. Lastly, three dots translates to an S in Morse code. Without getting too ahead of ourselves, an S could be symbolic of the yet-to-be-introduced gang leader Silas, and it could also refer to the winding, curvilinear path forged internally, externally, and morally by the protagonist. So already we're dealing with a lot of potential symbolism, the kind that clearly rewards repeat viewings. Unsurprisingly, the last visual I want to touch on today fits into that category as well. Right before the title reveal, Belle literally looks into the rearview mirror, her resting place, a sort of mission statement for the film and character that is not so much obsessed with the past as she is perpetually living inside its wound. The filmmakers could have overemphasized this point showing an objects in mirror are closer than they appear close up, which I would not have criticized since I'm someone who is a big believer in narrative thematic clarity, but its implicit communication is just as powerful, if not more so, and unavoidable with each subsequent viewing of the film. With the visual analysis done for now, I want to talk about the very first line in Destroyer, which is, Quote, 11 Charlie Lima 7, possible 187, request homicide. End quote. For those listening intently and who might know what some of these codes mean, they're telling you there's going to be a dead body. By extension, they're telling you there was or is going to be a murder. The filmmakers are telling you what's going to happen. I love this because, as I recall mentioning at some point in an invitation to the invitation, a story's quality shouldn't rest solely on whether it can be spoiled for you or not. Is a story or film more fun if you don't know the outcome beforehand? Almost certainly, and I would probably make that argument enthusiastically. Yet, as Shakespeare teaches us again and again, with Romeo and Juliet in particular, a play that has its tragic finale explicitly stated in its prologue, Spoiling the ending of something is in no way a purely accurate means of its quality, not to mention its endurance. Even one of Bell's earliest lines of dialogue echoes this notion when she asks, What if I know who did this? A seemingly characteristic fuck you to her colleagues, and a question she not only knows the answer to, but is an answer she embodies. This cements an almost hidden nearly imperceptible statement of purpose from Kusama, Hay, and Manfredi. One that, again, seems to say to the audience, seems to say to us, this is how it ends. An Invitation to Destroyer is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola and stars Eileen Anglin as Aaron Bell. Original score is by John Panola. Graphic design is by Joseph Panola. Original paintings and artwork by Logan Riley 
and Piper Schauberg. Additional graphic design by Jim Panola, and executive producer is John Panola. Featured actors this episode are John Patrizzi as Detective Kudra and Risa Montanez as Detective Gavras. Additional voiceover by Jacob Hall. Follow us on Twitter at an invitation, no underscores, and follow us on Instagram at invitation to invitation. That's invitation, the number two invitation with no underscores. Special thanks to Phil Hay, Matt Manfredi, and Karin Kasama. And thank you for listening. Again, don't forget to rate and review an invitation to Destroyer on Apple Podcasts. It's a small action that makes a big difference. Similarly, please spread the word if you enjoyed this episode and tell a friend about the show who you think might like it. And once more, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola. For just a couple dollars a month, you can get a wealth of written and audio bonus content that includes, but is not limited to, early access, exclusive extended cuts, as well as the official companion podcast titled Ellipsis, where I chat about the movie with some very special guests and fans. I'm really excited about this and want to share with as many patrons as possible. On that note, extra special shout out to a few of my very generous Patreon patrons, Rupa Dasgupta, John Panola, and Jane Panola. I love you guys, you're all amazing. So once more, thank you. Until next time.